Isaiah is uh, one of those great prophets of the Old Testament. I mean, they're all great, but Isaiah really stands out. And uh, if you remember, when Jesus preached his first sermon, he chose a text from Isaiah. Uh, We know about Isaiah. We often think about a great event that occurred at Isaiah's at Isaiah's calling in chapter 6, that was when uh, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he had that vision of those angelic hosts uh, uh, around the throne of God, crying day and night, Not, they weren't crying, but singing day and night, holy, holy, holy. We, most of us know about that. And so chapter 7, where we're going to look at today, comes after that calling by Isaiah the prophet. And uh, so Isaiah is, a, is, a, is, is full of uh, wonderful truths concerning Christ and the coming of Messiah. Now, just by way of reminder, I, I remind this uh, to us a lot, but the Old Testament, that was the, the Bible, so to speak, of, of, of Jesus, of the early church. And you remember in Luke 24, I, I, I love this story and I always quote it, when Jesus, after he was resurrected, he was walking on the road to Emmaus. And he comes along, those disciples that were walking along the road, and they don't recognize him. He doesn't identify himself, and he's conversing with them. But if you remember, uh, the way that he identified himself is he began to show them in the law and the prophets and the Psalms all those things that were about him, the Messiah. And so it's like he took the Old Testament and just showed them all those pictures in the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus. The Old Testament is full of... Of Jesus. That's the reason we're talking about Isaiah. You're thinking, well, why aren't we in the New Testament? Well, it's all one Bible, and Isaiah has uh, a lot to encourage us and a lot to be reminded of concerning the birth of Messiah. And so today we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. I'm not going to read it up front as we'll walk through some of it and, uh, and talk about it and emphasize the one scripture that we all are very familiar with, and it's the scripture that is really the, the anchor of this chapter, and we can just read that, and I think we're going to put the next slide on the screen, and that one verse will be there, and it says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign... Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And so we're going to talk about the sign of the Savior, okay? So before we do that, let's ask God's blessing to uh, hear his word today and uh, open our hearts and and minds and ears to to hear and take everything he has uh, to give us this morning. Father, we bless you today. We pray that you would open your word to our hearts and our minds. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, I pray in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, amen, or oh me. All right, uh, here's, the key, here's the key thought, just to kind of wrap some things around, because I'll be honest with you, the Old Testament uh, is not as easy sometimes to, I mean, there's a lot of stories and narratives, but it, but it sometimes can be a challenge as we preach it and teach it. And if you've noticed, uh, if you've been around, uh, we've walked through Jonah and uh, looking at possibly after the first year doing a series through Exodus, and I, I intend intentionally 
uh, want us to be people that embrace the whole Bible, not just little parts. And so uh, some of that is to challenge myself uh, pastorally in preaching. I was having lunch not too long back with another pastor, and as a lot of times pastors do, we you know sometimes talk about what we're doing and uh, different things and reading or whatever, and I said, yeah, I'm talked about how I'm doing some things in the Old Testament, and he was like, oh, man, I, that, that just scares the daylights out of me. I don't want to commit to getting in the Old Testament. That You know, a sermon here and there, you know, uh, but he said to do a series in the Old Testament, he said, I'm, I'm, that, that, that intimidates me. And I said, well, it intimidates me too, but it's part of the challenge that we need to be people of the entire book and remember that Jesus is much pictured in the Old Testament as he is in the New. So that's uh, why one of the reasons I like the idea of going through the book of Isaiah, or at least in some section or parts of it. And so we're talking about a Christmas hope, and here, here's what we want to kind of center our thoughts around. Our Christmas hope is that God sends forth a sign. We're going to talk about the sign of the Savior, that God sends forth a sign or a message of the coming of Messiah, Jesus, uh, concerning his miraculous birth and the marvelous promise of his presence among his people. Hope and the sign of hope. I couldn't help but think when I think about the title hope and use that word, I think about uh, from one of my favorite movies, uh, The Shawshank Redemption. Now you're wondering, how in the world is that a Christmas movie? Well, it's not. But if you remember the character Red, they're sitting out in the courtyard of the prison, and Andy, who's there on uh, charges, uh, uh, and, and of course everybody's innocent, you know, in prison. But he, you know, he's there and he's talking to Red, uh, who's played by Morgan Freeman, and he's the character that really kind of befriends him. And uh, Andy is being very positive and talking, and then uh, Red tells him, he says, t- says this line. He says, "Hope is a finish it." Y'all don't know the line? Evelyn, do you know the line? All right. I just, hope is a dangerous thing. Now, remember what he's saying. He's in prison, and essentially what he's saying, just deal with your life sentence, get on with living, and he would say, either you're either getting on busy living or you're getting busy dying. But Red says, Morgan Freeman, the character says, hope is a dangerous thing. Well, for the believer, hope is not a dangerous thing. It's a wonderful thing. And we have hope of Messiah, the hope of Jesus. And that's kind of what we, uh, we want to talk about as we talk about the sign of the Savior and anchor that verse in verse 14 of being born, that the Messiah would come, born of a virgin, and his name would, and identity would be Emmanuel, God with us. That's one of those predictive prophecies of the Messiah that are contained in the Old Testament, predictive prophecy of Messiah that would rescue, redeem, and restore. If you want to know what Messiah did, rescues, he redeems God's people from sin and restores them into right relationship. Jesus accomplished that not because of his perfect life, and he led a perfect life. Jesus did not accomplish that because of his 
teaching, and nobody has taught greater than, than Jesus. Uh, he did not accomplish that because of his miracles that he did. Uh, he accomplished that because of his atoning death on the cross that Jesus was the one sent by God who would be that atoning sacrifice. You remember in Genesis 3.15 in the, when, when humankind, Adam and Eve, fell into sin and, and there was that curse, but God gave hope. He gave Christmas hope, if we could say it that way, right there in Genesis 3.15 when he said there would be the seed that would come from the woman that would crush the serpent's head, being Satan. Jesus, the Messiah, is the serpent crusher. He's the one who has destroyed the works of the devil and made a way where there was no way. That's what Paul said for he, when he said that, "...for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received." That Christ, and the word Christ is the Greek equivalent of Messiah, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And so that's why we're in Isaiah. We're seeing it according to the Scriptures, that Jesus was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So we're looking ahead, looking through the eyes of Isaiah. I'm not sure Isaiah, I mean, I would be fairly certain that Isaiah probably didn't quite grasp or couldn't have grasped the words that he was speaking here. But what I found helpful in studying chapter 7 isn't just, and when I read that verse, and if you read verses uh, all around that, it just kind of comes out of nowhere when you first read it. It's like you're reading about this king and a war that's getting ready to go on, and then all of a sudden there's this word in, in verse 14 about the Lord himself will give you a sign. And, of course, immediately our minds go right to Jesus and the Messiah and the coming and the Mother Mary born of a virgin, and we're like, where did that come from? That just seemed to you know, kind of come out of uh, nowhere. And I found it helpful that if we're going to understand Scripture is to just take a moment here and let's, make sh- let's kind of understand the context of where verse 14 uh, comes out of. And so uh, I'm not going to belabor this. I want to do it kind of in a quick fashion. But in uh, previous verses leading up to that, uh, there's a lot of things going on there. And I hope that when we come to verse 14, we're not going to belabor it, but when we come to verse 14, it will will perhaps uh, give you a, a greater sense of what God was saying through the prophet Isaiah and kind of seeing what was going on here that, that the Lord prompted Isaiah to speak this messianic promise in chapter 7. God gives a message through his prophet. He just intervenes with this message of hope, of a sign, of a savior. But here's what's going on. The nation of Israel is divided in half in this time period. There's a northern kingdom and there's a southern kingdom. Now, this is where it gets a little confusing as you read your Bible because often the northern kingdom is referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom is referred to as Judah. So when you're reading it, it's talking about Israel, and, and it, you're, you know, it can get a little confusing if you don't have a scorecard to keep things, uh, 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 you know, of, of who's on first. Uh, so... The nation is divided. It's split in half. There's, there's a civil divide, a civil war. You remember the, uh, after David, Solomon and Solomon's sons, all of them were rascals, and uh, that's where the nation split in half. 
Jerusalem and Judah, the southern part of Israel, that's where God was working. He was working through that Davidic messianic line, but the rogue nation that that broke off and established an alternative place of worship, you remember Samaria? And uh, they created an alternative uh, form of worship. God was not in that. He's only operating at this period through the tabernacle or through the temple and Jerusalem and that Davidic line. And so you have all this tension going on and battles and different things happening. And when we come to chapter 7, the king of Judah, the southern king, where Jerusalem is its capital, uh, he is, um, he's panicking. Look at verses one through two, one and two of Isaiah chapter seven. It says, in the days of Ahaz, say Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, he's kind of given all his credentials there. He's king of Judah. Reason, Rezin is the king of Syria. We still have Syria in the news, don't we? And here they are. And Pekah, the son of Ramallah, the king of Israel, he's the northern king, all right? Now, don't, 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 don't check out when you start talking about some of these details because uh, they're important. And he came up, uh, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but he could not mount an attack against it. And when the house of David, that's Judah, Ahaz, that's the Jerusalem, Syria, and we was told that Syria is in league with Ephraim, another term meaning that northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. All right, here's what's going on here. You got that king up north, and he wants to take over and plunder the southern. He wants the whole enchilada. Well, he can't do it by himself the northern kingdom guy. So what does he do? He forms an alliance with Syria. Syria at this period is coming on strong as a world power, and they want a little piece of the action too, so they form an unholy alliance, the northern kingdom and Syria, to attack Judah. And when King Ahaz heard this, he said, that's fake news. No, he didn't say that. He began to tremble, and the people heard it, and they shook like leaves on a tree. This is a panic season, right? So Ahaz begins to prepare. And again, I'm not going to read every verse here, but Isaiah the prophet tells him to go out and meet Ahaz. And where he finds King Ahaz, uh, he doesn't find him, perhaps as you would think, on his knees, asking for God's protection, asking for God's mercy. Verse 3, I think, tells us that he's inspecting their water supply. Think, well, why is he doing that? Because he is getting ready for war, and he knows that if Jerusalem is going to be attacked, Syrians, northern kingdom, all you know, coming against them, they better have adequate food and adequate what? water, because it's going to be a long siege. Here's, here's the side note. King of Judah, he's really not, he's not looking to God. He's really saying, you know what, I think we can handle this. I want to inspect and see what our resources are, what my resources are. I got this. Don't we do that? When we face crisis and panic and issues, 
Instead of driving us to the presence of God, what do we do? We begin to check, well, let me see. I know I got this balance on this credit card. I can pull money from here and da-da-da-da-da. We begin to examine our water supply, our resources. That's what he's doing here. So Isaiah goes out to meet him. And remember, Isaiah is a prophet of God, and he's going there on the initiative of speaking for God. And he goes out there, verse 4, and he tells them this word. He says, be quiet and do not fear. The Lord tells him to tell Ahaz, be quiet and do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, that's what the Lord compares the northern kingdom of Syria. They're just, they're, 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 listen, they've already, they're already burned up. They're not, they can't do anything to you. And so he goes out there, and he gives them this word. And the word of the Lord through Isaiah tells him in verse 7, he says to Ahaz, it shall not stand. Remember, he's shaken in his boots. It shall not stand. This is not going to, they are not going to win. This is not going to destroy you. It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus. By the way, it's still the capital of Syria. And the head of Damascus is Rezin, Rezin, this this king. And within 65 years, Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, they will be shattered from, from being a people. In other words, God says, look, I have seen the future. I make the future. I know the future. And these guys aren't even going to be in existence in a few generations, or in a generation. And he goes on to tell him, but look at the end of verse 9. He says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And again, it says, verse 10, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Who's Ahaz? He's the king, right, of Jerusalem, that southern, southern kingdom. God is, God is trying to speak a word of encouragement. He's trying to use God's man to, to, to fill him with some faith. And so he gives him this uh, uh, promise if he would do something. And the word of the Lord said to Ahaz, verse 10, he said, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol and as high as a heaven. Just a phrase saying, look, it can be as far as from the east to the west. In other words, Ahaz, through the prophet Isaiah, God is saying, ask God, blank check. Ask him for a sign. Ask him anything, and he'll do it. Now, that, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? I remember when the Lord asked Solomon, ask me anything. Remember what Solomon asked for? Asked for wisdom. And God blessed him because of, of uh, that uh, uh, humility that he had. But Ahab, verse 12, he's too spiritual. He, 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 he's really not interested in this. You know, he, he keeps Isaiah and those guys on the payroll. But you know what? He, he's really not. He, he's, he's busy checking the water supply, the food supply, making sure the military, because they, they are getting themselves ready for an attack. And so Ahaz kind of gives him this phony spiritual uh, answer and says, verse 12, but Ahaz said, I'm not going to ask, and I will not put the Lord to a test. In other words, you know what, that's, I, 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 um, 
it just wouldn't be right. I, I don't want to put the Lord to a test. But you know what? That's just a phony. You know, when people are really sometimes in disobedience, it's amazing how they'll, they'll kind of wrap it in a spiritual answer. They'll say, well, I've prayed about this. And well, when people tell me they're going to do something that, that I don't believe is God's best for their life, and they say, well, I've prayed about it, i just like, well, hey. Because they're stacking the deck before they talk to me. In other words, if God's already told you, hey, you don't need my advice, who am I? They're not really interested in hearing godly counsel, right? Because they've already made up their mind. That's the way this guy is. He's already made up his mind. He's rejecting God's counsel. Here they are, the nation. They're getting ready to face devastation and all out and out in their period of time, equivalent of like a nuclear war of destruction. And Ahaz rejects God's entreaty to say, ask of me. You know, sometimes God puts us in situations. Or let me say it this way. Sometimes God allows us to get in situations of desperation to do what? To force us to look to him because we are so consumed with our own selves. We're so wrapped up with our own stuff. And it's in those desperate desperate moments that we see what Isaiah may have seen, the Lord high and lifted up on a throne who's in control. But that's not what Ahaz is seeing here. He ignores God's offer to ask him for anything, ask him for a sign. He rejects it. You see, Ahaz only saw what was in front of him. And I find, again, we're working our way to verse 14. And Isaiah the prophet, verse 13, says this. And essentially, to paraphrase it, it's as if he's saying, okay, Ahaz, if you're not going to ask God, you just keep checking the water supply. You just keep doing your thing. And so now Isaiah turns and essentially puts this before the house of Israel. That's kind of a shorthand terminology to say the people of God, Judah, the house of David, because in Judah, that's the identity. They are the lineage of David. They're the Davidic line. They're the Davidic line that Messiah, son of David, would come through. So he turns from Ahaz and said, okay, if you're not going to listen, listen, O house of David. And you hear a little frustration in the word of the Lord here. Is it too little for you to weary men that you would, that you weary my God also? Do we weary God by our stubbornness sometimes? I think we might. Then you come to verse 14, and when you're reading it, it just like flies out of nowhere. And so now here is the word of the Lord. Here is the sign of the Savior. Here's the hope in the midst of this dark, impending doom. God says, therefore, therefore, house of David... The Lord, Yahweh himself, will give you a sign. Behold, which means look, pay attention. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I said earlier what's significant about that is God always has his focus on the big picture. 
Ahaz, all he could see was what was in front of him, the trouble that was coming. But God always sees way beyond what we see. And when he gave and inserted this word that we speak about, have quotes and sing cantatas and plays and interject into the fabric of our Christmas celebration about the the miraculous birth and his presence, Emmanuel, it just seems like it doesn't make sense. But here's the deal. What would happen if the northern kingdom and Syria were successful in coming against Jerusalem? What would they do? They would establish their own government. And what is typical is they would usually kill and murder everyone related in the king's line of the old king that was there because they don't want any nieces and nephews and brothers to come back and come against. They, they destroy the family line so that there's no inheritance of a future king. Now, in the southern kingdom's case of Judah, what does that mean? That means destruction of the house of David. Do you see the consequence? Satan has always... From Genesis 3, when he heard that promise, he has always attempted to destroy that messianic line. He tried to do it in Egypt, in possessing Pharaoh to throw all those babies into the Nile. You see, when you go back and you see how Satan has operated, even when they established and and prospered in Egypt, and there came a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, and the Pharaoh said, look, first, one of the first, anti-Semite says you cannot trust these people because they're going to grow and prosper and they're going to destroy us. And so we've got to do something about these Jews. They weren't called Jews, but that helps us. If God was not sovereign, if he was not just preoccupied with, like Ahaz, what was going on in the immediate And God inserts this word, this verse, to remind us, remind us, it was news to them, that God's agenda and God's plan of Messiah cannot be thwarted, cannot be destroyed. I don't care the rumblings of what's going on up there up north. Isaiah says they will not succeed. Why won't they succeed? Because Ahaz is such a genius. Because he's got more water and food and bigger military. No. You know why they won't succeed? It's because God says, I am going to bring forth my son through a woman. She will be born by a virgin. He will be born by a virgin. And he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. God says, I have an agenda. I have a plan. And you need to keep your eyes on the big picture, guys. You need to keep your focus on what I'm doing and not all the stuff that's going on around you. You need to have confidence in my plan and my agenda. And when he inserts that word, and it's a reminder to who? The house of David. You remember the promise given to the house of David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7? Just listen to this. God made a covenant. Does God keep his covenants? Yes, he does. And God made a covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12. 
And God made a covenant with David. That's the, that, that Davidic line, that messianic line. You remember what he says? I'll just read it. He tells David, remember David wanted to build him a house or build him a temple, build him a structure? And God says, you can't build me a house as if I can be contained in some stone structure. You can't. But God says, you can't build me a house, but I can build you, David, what? I can build you a house. And I'm not talking about a ranch, three bedrooms, two baths, and a basement. He's saying, I will build a house through your line that one day there will be born connected with your throne, my son who will rule and reign forever. And so he told David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And some people think, well, that must mean Solomon. Well, in an earthly sense, partially. But verse 13 of 2 Samuel 7, Solomon can't fulfill. Listen to what else it says. This person that will come from your offspring, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Solomon and his sons in that earthly line, they didn't last forever. So he can't be talking about just them, but he's saying there is one who is coming that will be from that divinic line, who will be from your line, that will be connected to your royalty, and his kingdom will be forever. Now, I'll give you three guesses, and the first two don't count, of who he's talking about. Remember how Matthew opens up? Listen to this. Don't turn to it. The record, verse 1, chapter 1, Matthew, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Just sometime look at all the references to the son of David throughout Matthew and Luke. Why do you think that's important? Because it's connecting that prophetic line and what God had spoken hundreds of years before of the king that he would bring forth. So why is it a big deal that God's in charge of making sure that the house of David will not be destroyed by these two yahoos up in the north? Why? Because he's got a huge investment in his covenant. Does God have a huge investment in the covenant he's made through his blood in your life? Absolutely. That's the reason I believe in the security of the believer. Because it's not based on me. It's based in the commitment and covenant that God has made through his son, through his blood, atoned for us. Now we're ready to look at verse 14. Two quick things. He says, I will give you a sign. This will be a sign. There's two aspects of the sign. One is this birth will be miraculous. The word virgin, in the Hebrew, there's a little back and forth as far as the preciseness of it. Uh, 
It means an unmarried young girl of childbearing age. But when you see how it is used, even in the reference of the New Testament, how they use it, it specifically refers to a young unmarried woman who has not had sexual relations with a man. It isn't just an unmarried young woman of childbearing age. The writers of the Gospels were very uh, specific in connecting that Mary was a virgin. Uh, Matthew one twenty five. When Joseph, remember when he had that dream, he was ready to put her away, remember? They were at Cracker Barrel, and she gave him the news that she was pregnant. And the Holy Spirit was the father. We, we just kind of act like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. You know that, that. Are you kidding me? You'd choke on that sweet tea. But he had a dream. The Lord came to him in a dream and assured him that this was of God, right? Remember? And in Matthew 125, it says that Joseph, because he was a man of character, kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and called his name Jesus. She was a virgin. She did not have sexual union with Joseph. They were in the betrothal uh, stage, which is a part of Hebrew culture, which is way more than just an engagement. But he protected her, protected her, and she remained a virgin. You remember in Luke one thirty four when the angel came and announced how God was going to use her? What was her response? How can this be since I am a virgin? Why is that a big deal? It's a, it's a very big deal for Christians. John Frame, who is an eminent writer and theologian, let me just give you these reasons of why this is a big deal. Number one, it's a big deal because of the doctrine of Scripture. If Scripture is wrong here, then why would we trust its claims anywhere else? Why would we trust its claims about other supernatural events? Why would we believe something as crazy as a resurrection if we didn't believe that God, through his spirit, could come upon this woman and give her the seed of Messiah? Another reason why this is vital as Christians is that it has to do with the deity of Christ, the fact of God's godness, that Jesus is God, the incarnation or his conception and birth. It's a supernatural event. It's a supernatural event. If you eliminate the supernatural from the birth of Christ and he just came about just like anybody else, that, in, that impugns the very identity and character of Jesus. He was God of very God. Some people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, the Pharisees thought he did because they wanted to kill him because he claimed to be equal with God. So if you deny the virgin birth, you have a different Jesus. But it also is important regarding the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was not just a little spirit baby that just kind of fell to the earth. He was really born. Mary was really pregnant. 
her water broke. He had an umbilical cord. And I will leave the details there. He was really born. The Gospels are clear in constantly referring that Mary was with child and that Mary gave birth. She had labor pains. He was really born. He was truly human, and yet in the mystery of God, he is, he's not half human and half God. He is fully human and fully God. You say, I don't understand that. Exactly. It also is important concerning the sinlessness of Jesus. Jesus was the Lamb of God that Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He, God, made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we... Why is this a big deal? that we might become the righteousness of God. No virgin birth, no sinless Messiah, and we're lost and dead in our sins for eternity. And it really is a reminder of the picture of grace because just as everything else relating to salvation is that God took the initiative. God came upon Mary. God created and gave life to her supernaturally. God initiated that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the sign is a miraculous sign. But don't miss the other part of verse 14. His name shall be called, what? Emmanuel. Now we know that uh, means, because Matthew, when he's making reference to Isaiah in this very place, he helps his readers by interpreting Emmanuel means God with us. Now, if you take that thought and go and think about other places that round that out, I thought of John 1.14. And the Word, remember in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But if you look down at John 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh, and did what? And dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Hang on to that Word. That's John 1.14. He dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. John 1.14. Hang on to that with me. The term dwelt among us, as I'm sure many of you know, is literally means, it could read this way, for the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Let's even get more literal. The word of the Lord became flesh, and the word became flesh, and pitched a tent where we live. That's what dwelt among us. And it literally means that 
this word, Jesus, came, tabernacled, pitched a tent where we live. I don't remember what version uh, that uses this, but says that he came and pitched a tent in our neighborhood. I like that. Where were we living? We were living in sin. Does that move you? We were living in sin, and the God of very God, born of a virgin, Emmanuel, God with us, John 1, 14, he came and pitched a tent in our neighborhood who became, became sin, who knew no sin, and he lived among us. As I began to look at that, my mind, you know, as I'm sure yours does too, when it uses the phrase, he pitched a tent. That's not just a random terminology there. Do you remember what, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, and they, in Ezekiel, or not Ezekiel, in Exodus 21, how God gave Moses the instructions and established what was called a tent of meeting, foreshadowing a tabernacle, foreshadowing a temple. What was that place? It was where God, a very God, would meet and dwell among his people. Now, you know, if you know a little bit, you know there's parameters and barriers, and only certain people could go into the absolute holy of holies presence of God. Do you think there's any connection with John the Apostle being under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit using that term that the Word became flesh and pitched a tent that the presence of God? You see, from that tent of meeting that the Israelites had in the wilderness, they would later, David had the plan, Solomon built it, they would establish and build this magnificent earthly temple. Don't get sleepy on me, guys. We'll, turn, we'll crank up the air, make you feel good. Almost done. Don't, don't miss this, okay? Sleep this afternoon. I go into a deep prayer on Sunday afternoon. Vision of angels and all sorts of things. This temple where the presence of God was dwelling among his people in a much greater fashion than that tent. Eventually, a nation called Babylon came into Jerusalem and wiped it out. Gone. And Ezekiel says that when that happened, listen to this, the glory of God left the earth. And the glory of God, in our language, went back to heaven. The temple where God dwelt among his people was gone. How were we going to meet God? Where would we commune with God? Fast forward 600 years later, and the apostle John, in that verse 14 of chapter 1, writes that the glory of God has come back to earth not in a temple made with hands, not in a tent, but in the embodiment of Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who is that new tent. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. When you read it, and you see what's going on around it, I hope it makes a little more impact in how God injected that word. And let me leave you just with these encouraging words. God always has a word for you in your day of trouble. This was a day of trouble for these folks. Ahaz, he, you know, he's doing his thing. God gave him an opportunity, and finally Isaiah turned to the house of David and said, here's some hope for you guys. Your king's not going to listen to you, but here's some hope. God always has a word in desperate times. Let's not be too busy inspecting our resources and saying, God, keep me focused on your presence, on your plan, Another word of encouragement to you as we round this out is God is always bigger than what you fear. God is always bigger than what you fear. Remember what Isaiah told him in verse 4, chapter 7? He says, be calm, calm down, be quiet, be still. What does the word tell us in Psalm 46.10? Be still and what? No, I'm God. Sometimes God just wants us, present company excluded. Here we're talking to somebody and they're just, and you want to just, and you just say, will you be quiet and quit talking and just listen to what I'm saying here? I think you probably did that to me, but. (laughs) Be still. Be still. God is in control, and he's always bigger than what you fear. And the last is if you do not fight the fight of faith. Remember what Isaiah told that king in verse 9? If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you're not standing strong in faith, what is another word for faith? Trust. If you're not trusting in God, If we're just going to wing it instead of holding fast to the one who's in control, holding fast to the one who made you, holding fast to the one that will never leave us nor forsake us. And it's that word that maybe 800 years from the time Isaiah gave it to a teenage girl was visited by the angel of the Lord. And was given this word of fulfillment. God always keeps his word. Amen. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we will draw hope and strength today. Lord, sometimes the words of passages and truths related to this time of year have an over-familiarity to us. But I pray that today, or in the midst of history, 
the midst of an indifferent king that for the most part, other than written here, history has forgotten. That in the midst of absolute terror and panic, you gave an eternal word of hope that your plans have not faltered, your plans have not been sidelined, they have not been deterred, but they're right on schedule. And as Paul would say in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, at just the exact time, God sent forth his son. 